Good to be here with you all again. Uh, I'm Cyril Chavis. I'm the RUF campus minister at Howard University. And I just want to start off by saying thank you. Uh, you all have been an encouragement. You all have prayed. You all have given towards the ministry that happens there. And so I just want to say thank you. RUF could not do what we do without churches and individuals who get behind us. Um, RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. And in many ways, how I like to describe us, has anyone um, ever been to a food truck? We're like the food truck of the church. We bring hopefully all of the, the best dishes and meals of the church to the college campus, uh, and they taste and see that the Lord is good and want to walk with him for a lifetime uh, in the context of the full life of the church. Also, maybe if you have never been to a food truck, maybe Uber Eats, you know, um, bringing the food from the restaurant directly to another place. And so we, we, we want to be the representatives of God's kingdom to college students. We want to love them and serve them well. We want to see them glorify and enjoy God in every area of life. And um, so on this Mission Sunday, it, it is a joy to be here with you all. We're going to talk a little bit about the heart of a missionary or the, the missionary posture. So if you would turn with me to Mark chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 30. Mark chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 30. So Mark is a gospel account, meaning it's a telling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So it's towards the back of the Bible. So if you, if you uh, flip towards the back, uh, you'll, 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 you'll be close. If you see Luke, you've gone too far. If you see Matthew, keep flipping. And really in this section of Mark, he's teaching his disciples what it means to embrace a life that is shaped by the cross. To embrace a life that is shaped by the cross a mission that is shaped by the cross. And we will see that Christ invites us to be great by becoming small. Christ invites us to be great by becoming small. So again, turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verse 30. I'll read to verse 50. I'll pray for us and we'll dive in. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. 
Or truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the fact that you are so good, you decided to speak to us. You have given us your word so that we might know you, we might live for you. So Lord, we are gathered here today, we've, we've sung, Lord, we have prayed, Lord, we've confessed the faith, Lord, we've confessed our sins, we've received assurance of our pardon, Lord, we have done all these things, and Lord, we ask that you would continue to meet with us during this time. Lord, would you dwell among us by the power of your Spirit? Holy Spirit, fill me that I might be able to serve you here. Holy Spirit, I need you. Lord, I'm made of dust. And Spirit, I need you to to enliven me. I need you to give me conviction and power and boldness, humility, Lord, forgive me for my sins that I might serve you with a clean conscience. Lord, I pray for your hearers. Lord, I pray that you would move, that you would uh, blow the wind of your spirit upon them, that they might actually be able to hear your word, to believe your word, to love your word, to store it up in their hearts and practice it day to day. Lord, we don't just want to be good hearers of your word. We want to be good doers of your word. Lord, many of us have come here this morning looking for change. We want to change. Lord, I pray that you would transform us into the image of your son, Jesus. Make us small. Lord, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, I was interviewing a professor of RTS. Uh, Her name is Professor K.A. Ellis, and she's the director of the Edmiston Center for the study of the Bible and ethnicity at RTS Atlanta. So she studies theological ethics and world Christianity, and she works really closely with Christians who are uh, following Jesus on the margins, Christians who are under persecution. And she was telling me about a powerful opportunity that she had recently in serving Christians on the margins. So she was honored to facilitate a handwritten letter of encouragement from a group of pastors in one closed country 
to, a, to another church in another country thousands of miles away across a language barrier. In reflecting on this opportunity of being kind of this, 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 this letter deliverer, she says this, I'm just the middle man standing in the middle of all these people doing really amazing things. And, 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 and she says this, all I have to do is just stand here and be small. Isn't that such a great way to view ministry, to view mission, really to view all of life? If I could just stand here and be small. The beginning of every great ministry is a person who is willing to be small. But don't we oftentimes embrace the opposite posture in our ministries? Um, that we will only stand in the service of God if we can be big and be seen and be great and be known. And if we are not big and known, we refuse to stand in the service of God. And this is exactly the kind of posture that the disciples had in our passage. But Jesus corrected them and he invited them to be great, but in a different way than we usually expect. So the main point for our time this morning, this is the whole sermon in, in a few words. Christ invites you to be great but he invites you to be great in a different way than you anticipate. He invites you to be great by becoming small. Christ invites you to be great by becoming small. And I, I just want to look at a few ways that we need to become small. Uh, so first thing, we must embrace the small. We must embrace the small. And we see this in verses 33 through 37. So our passage is actually in the middle of a larger section. It starts in Mark 8, 22, and goes all the way to chapter 10, verse 52. And Jesus is kind of giving his disciples three rounds of uh, kind of crucifixion medicine. He's reminding them, I'm going to die and then rise again. And so in our passage of traveling through Galilee, he's teaching them for the second time about his death and resurrection. And as they were traveling, Jesus notices that they were having arguments among themselves. And so when they got to their destination, Capernaum was kind of like their home base. And um, they, they, they go into a home, maybe it's actually the, the, the home of Jesus' family or, or, or ministry home base. Jesus gets there and he asks them, hey, what were you guys arguing about along the way? And the disciples were silent. And I don't know, the text doesn't tell us why they were silent. I imagine they were maybe too embarrassed to admit what they were actually arguing about. Or maybe they were a little scared um, because maybe they knew if they told Jesus they were in for a, a, a rebuke. Uh, but Jesus knew exactly what they were arguing about. Mark tells us in verses 33 through 34 that while Jesus was teaching them about suffering and death and the alternative route of what it actually means to be exalted, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. Now, I, I don't have any idea of what their measuring system was like. You know, in college we have, uh, you know, when you do an assignment, there's a rubric and the professor grades you according to the rubric. I don't know what Jesus' rubric uh, or, or the disciples' rubric was for who was the greatest. Maybe they're like, I've done the most healings this past week. I'm the greatest among us. Or maybe they're like, no, 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 no. I've definitely spent more time with Jesus recently. You know, I'm going to be the most exalted in the kingdom. I really don't know what their measurement system was, but we see that they were obsessed with their own status, their own exaltation, and their own glory in comparison to the next disciple. So Jesus gives them a live illustration, uh, and he introduces his illustration by saying this, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The way to become great 
is to become small. And the greatest leader among them was the greatest servant among them. Jesus totally revamped their measurement system of what it meant to be great. He was like, give me your rubric, and he balls it up and he throws it into the trash. And he does this by taking a child into the middle of the room. So I imagine they're in a room and the disciples are sitting around him and maybe the children are playing off in the corner in another room. And he brings a child to himself, sits down, puts the child in his lap and literally embraces this child. And he says, to receive this child in Jesus' name is to receive him. This is powerful. The disciples were to embrace the small. So like parables, this is not meant to be dissected, but this is meant to impact us. Um, So let's look at a few things. Why did Jesus take a child? You know, oftentimes we could come up with a lot of deep reasons why Jesus took a child in, in, in his arms. But if you know the historical context, the children were the most lowly of society. They were just lowly. It actually would have been like kind of a little bit of a scandal for the children to be in the middle of the room while their Lord and master is sitting there teaching. And he embraces this child, the lowly, the most unimportant of society. And what does it mean to receive in Jesus' name? To do something in someone else's name is to represent that person. Jesus is trying to tell them, in order to understand me, you have to understand that I can use the most unimportant the most lowly and the small of society to be my representatives. Jesus embraced the smallest as worthy of association with the greatest, and Jesus shows this by embracing a child. Here's also what Jesus is doing. He's really challenging even their conception of what it means to be an apostle. So in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, when Jesus is sending out the apostles for ministry, he tells them this, whoever receives you receives me, And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Did y'all catch that? This is the same language that Jesus used for the child that was sitting in his arms. He's basically trying to say in an awful way, to be an apostle, you must embrace the persona of a child. To be small, unimportant, and lowly. To be an apostle is to be a childlike representative of Jesus. And this passage ought to shape the mission of the church. As a people, we must ask ourselves, in our community, in our city, what does it look like to be those who embrace the small? What does it mean to be those who embrace the most lowly, unimportant, and forgotten of our city and community? But secondly, Christ invites you to be great by uniting with the small, by uniting with the small. And we see this in verses 38 through 42. So uh, Mark's gospel account, really the Bible is hilarious. I think the Bible is hilarious, but especially Mark's gospel account because the disciples are, um, they're, uh, I was going to, they're just knuckleheaded. It's hard for them to get things through and they do funny things like this. So after Jesus has just finished telling them this, John speaks up. And he's basically like, Jesus, we saw someone casting out a demon in your name and we stopped him. He's basically like, Jesus, we literally just did what you told us not to do. It's like, John, did you want to be corrected? Did you want to be rebuked? Um, But basically, the reason why the apostle stopped this person from casting demons out is because this apostle, I mean, this this other disciple wasn't a part of the apostle's crew. He said, hey, this person wasn't with us, so we stopped him from serving you, Jesus. 
And it makes sense that the apostles would do this because they were obsessed with being great. And you know what's one of the, 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 the biggest ways you know that you're obsessed with being great? Is you have a competitive spirit. Another person's success means your own failure. And whenever we start to feel competitive with others, I know in my own life, I, I kind of have this funny thing. I have an inside joke with myself. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm a weirdo. I have an inside joke with myself. I'm like, Cyril, are you trying to be great again? Why are you being competitive right here? Why do you feel this way? You're trying to be great, huh? I poke fun at myself. And this is comical because literally 20 verses earlier, Mark tells us about a situation where the disciples try to cast out a demon and they failed. This is hilarious. So here you have the great apostles who failed 20 verses earlier. And then now you have them trying to stop the lowly disciple who is succeeding. The disciples thought the only way that God should work is through us. And if not through us, then no one. Right? It's like the, the, your favorite villain from your, from, from your TV show. Like, if, if, if I can't have the world, then no one else will. And Jesus here encourages the apostles to celebrate those who have united with Jesus in the apostles' cause, even if they are lowly, even if they are kind of, quote unquote, not a part of our clique, part of our crew. And Jesus will reward even the smallest act done in his name and for his glory. So what is happening here, so it's actually funny. When you look at verses 30 through 50, you're like, you know, there's one, two, three, there's four. Your Bible divides that into four sections. But I think it's actually one big section. It's, it's talking about how the disciples ought to relate to smallness. So it kind of transitions here. You're like, okay, now we're talking about, um, you know, a, a millstone. And we're talking about uh, all, all these different things. And basically Jesus says this. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea when it comes to causing one of his little ones to stumble. And he says this because his apostles were doing just that. They were causing one of his little ones to stumble in service to him. Now you're like, what's a millstone? A millstone is like a big circular stone that was moved by a donkey uh, in agricultural societies to grind out grain. And so to have this stone wrapped around your neck and then, and then to be thrown into the sea, in the, in, 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 the sea was like the place of chaos and it, it was the abyss, it was the deep. So to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck, it would have been a gruesome death with no hope of being saved. And Christ is saying this judgment belongs to those who mess with his precious little ones. Family, is it possible that some of us might have the heart of the disciples? We have to ask ourselves, in what ways do we have competitive spirits towards the people, the churches, the ministries, the, the categories of people that we view as lesser than, that we view as not as sophisticated in their Christianity, or just not as sophisticated in, in, in their lifestyle, or not as close to Jesus? In what ways are we refusing to unite and celebrate the Jesus-centered service of small ones? And are we taking Jesus' warning seriously to those who refuse to unite with the small? But thirdly, Christ invites us to be great by sacrificing for the small. 
He invites us to be great by sacrificing for the small. And we see this in verses 43 through 48. So remember, all, all, the, all these verses are connected. Um, and so Jesus starts talking about like cutting off your hand and your feet and you're plucking out your eyes and you're like, Jesus, weren't we just talking about a millstone? And then before then, weren't we just talking about a child? What's happening here? So I think basically Christ is telling them, you must get rid of all things in your life that prevent you from being small. In Matthew's words, the, all things in their life that causes them to despise little ones in their lives. And he says they must sacrifice even to the point of becoming physically crippled, physically lame, or partially blind. And though Jesus is using an exaggerated statement here, we can't allow that to uh, cause us to miss the impact of his words. Like, oh, obviously Jesus was exaggerating. No, no, no. What he's wanting us to get is that to become small requires great, great sacrifice. The kind of sacrifice that oftentimes, and maybe I'll say all the time, we are not willing to do in and of ourselves. And three times he presents two paths to the disciples. They can either sacrifice for the sake of the small and receive life, they can, he says, enter into life. He uses that phrase. Basically, you can enter into life with one who has the marks of sacrifice, or you can refuse to sacrifice for the sake of the small and receive fiery judgment. This, this isn't, you know, we oftentimes say that the Old Testament God was mean, and then Jesus is the nice one, and we pit them against each other. Jesus has a lot of passages like this, where he's like, if you don't become small, there is a place of fiery judgment where there's gnashing of teeth and the worm does not die. Jesus is a multifaceted Jesus, and he gives us a warning because he is crazy about his little ones, and he is a God of justice. This is a hard word, isn't it? In our mission, we must sacrifice, and we have to ask ourselves, what are the things in my life as I'm seeking to, to, to be on mission um, here in College Park or, or, or across the seas around the world, what are things in my life that are causing me to refuse to associate with the small and become small? It could be a way of thinking. It could be a friendship. It could be a job. It can be a social club. It can be a neighborhood we live in. It can be anything. What is causing me to stumble in becoming small for the sake of Christ's mission? But lastly, Christ invites us to be great by giving it all. Christ invites us to be great by giving it all. And we see this in verses 49 through 50. So these last two verses in our passage are some of the hardest to interpret. Um, I was staring at these verses for a long time. But basically Christ says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So these verses are hard to interpret on multiple levels. Number one, at the level of Greek grammar and the Greek manuscript tradition. Some of y'all, let me see. At the end of verse 49, some of y'all have like, my Bible has the little number seven. So whenever you see that, that means the, either the Greek or the manuscript tradition is kind of tough. Um, so it's difficult there. And then on another level, the imagery being used here. You're like, Jesus, I thought we were talking about cutting off limbs. Now we're talking about salt. What's going on, Jesus? <laughs> he basically says, everyone must be salted with fire. What does it mean to salt with fire? 
So I'm going to try my best to explain what I think is happening here in these verses. I believe Jesus is, Jesus is switching from one location in Jerusalem to another. So he was just talking about um, fire. He, so earlier in our passage, uh, Jesus was basically giving them two options. They either sacrifice deeply for the sake of the small or they embrace fiery judgment. Now our Bible, your Bible uses the term hell because of our like Western European legacy and like our translators help us out by using the term hell. But really the term in Greek is Gehenna. The term is Gehenna. And really even the Greek comes from a Hebrew term, um, ooh, uh, the, the, the Valley of the Sons of Hymnon. And you know, in Greek, it, it kind of, they squeeze it all together and it's Gehenna. But basically, Jesus is referring to an actual physical location. This valley was a, was a literal place outside of Jerusalem. And in the Old Testament, it's a place associated with God's judgment over his enemies. So first, Jesus is talking about if you're opposing the little ones, this valley uh, is, is the place for you. Jesus is giving a warning. But now what I think he's doing here is he's taking us from outside of Jerusalem right into the, 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 the middle of the temple, and he's bringing us to the temple altar, another fiery place. And oftentimes when they would offer sacrifices on the altar, they would sprinkle it with salt. Isn't that cool? Did y'all know they would season uh, sacrifices for God? And basically, Christ is saying, there is no way to escape fire. You either face a fire that separates you from God, Gehenna, or a fire that offers you up to God on an altar. You either face a fire that brings down the great, or a fire that lifts up the small to the Lord. Just like salt was used to prepare sacrifices on the altar in the Old Testament era, the disciples were to embrace smallness in preparation to give their lives for Jesus as a pleasing aroma on the altar of sacrifice. And then in verse 50, he asks a rhetorical question. He basically says, how can seasoning be seasoned when it's lost its seasoning? Right? How can salty, how, how can salt well, what is it good for when it's lost its saltiness? You can't salt salt, right? The answer is there's no way. Seasoning cannot be seasoned. It can't season itself. It's just good to be thrown out. And he's kind of basically telling them, just like salt cannot be anything other than salt, a disciple cannot be anything other than a small servant. To be a great disciple, to be a great disciple is an oxymoron. It's like a trunk wide shut. It's the same thing, a great disciple. It just doesn't go together. So here's the thing. What do we do with this? What do we do with this hard, challenging word from Jesus to his disciples? On this Mission Sunday, we ought to adopt a missionary mindset that embraces smallness. And a missionary mindset that embraces smallness is one that is willing to embrace the small, unite with the small, sacrifice for the small, and give it all. And this means that you ought to do this, we ought to do this when we are tempted to only engage in the mission of God, when it means we can serve those we deem as great, serving alongside of those we regard as first, when it means that we get to only serve when we are comfortable and if we'll be quote unquote first, and serving only when it means we get to keep our lives as they now stand. Serving the Lord requires great 
sacrifice. And this isn't only just for missionaries. This is for all of us under the sound of my voice. And why should we do this? Jesus ends the passage with this. He says, be at peace with one another. Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus says this because a small church, meaning a church that embraces smallness, this kind of church is a united church. Remember at the beginning of our passage, the disciples were arguing with one another? It's because they were trying to be great. If, if, if we're trying to be great, if you're trying to be great, you actually won't be united in mission with the people around you, and you can't actually go out and serve this city. Churches that embrace smallness are powerfully united for the glory of Christ and can do some damage for the kingdom in their city. So I urge us to continue to find ways to be prayerful, generous, and active in missionary work, particularly in the areas that are overlooked because they aren't flashy and exciting and and, and attractive. Reach out to these people, encourage them, and join them. But you might be thinking, you know what, this word is too hard. Being small and and serving until I give it all sounds really scary. My life is overwhelming as it stands right now. This sounds impossible. And I agree. It does sound impossible. It is really hard. But I think it is beautiful that Christ never calls us to something he isn't willing to do himself. We are to imitate him in all things. And here's the thing. Christ knows what it's like to stand serve, and be small. Christ, though equal with God the Father in power and glory, became small by becoming a human. Christ, though the King of kings and Lord of lords, became small by rejecting the royal city and ministering to the everyday folk in northern Palestine. Christ, though the creator of the whole world, became small by pursuing a world that did not recognize him. Christ, though the embodiment of cleanliness and purity, became small by touching the diseased and the lepers to heal them. Christ, though righteous in every way, became small by eating with the morally scandalous of his day. Christ, though the king of the Jews, became small by conversing with the despised Samaritans and the untouchable Gentiles. Christ, though the Lord of heaven's armies, became small by allowing an armed mob to capture his body for you and I. Christ, though judge of all the earth, became small by submitting to the unjust court proceedings of unjust judges. Christ, though clothed in the righteousness of God, became small by allowing his enemies to clothe him in a crown of thorns and robes of mockery. Christ, though the one worthy of all honor, became small by allowing his enemies to shamefully hang him naked on a piece of wood. Christ, though the giver of the highest life, became small by dying the lowest death of a slave. And Christ did all of this to serve you because Christ loves you. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, our selfish obsessions with being great deserve the millstone of drowning and the eternal fires of judgment, 
But Christ himself drowned in the wrath of God and faced the fires of God's fury in your place so that you can have eternal life and an entrance into the kingdom of God. The great one, Jesus, became small so that us great ones might have the power to actually become small. And Christ gives you his pardon and his power so that you can actually embrace smallness. With man, this is impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. We can only become small and give it all for Christ when we we realize that Christ became small and has given it all for us. So family, Christ invites you to be great, but great by becoming small. Great by embracing the small, great by uniting with the small, great by sacrificing for the small, and great by giving it all. Will you stand, serve, and be small? Amen. Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, I thank you for the beautiful privilege it is to watch you totally crush the trap of greatness and to lead us in the freedom of being lowly, unimportant, small, and obsessed with service. Make us humble. Make us small like you, Lord. Because, Lord, we know that you oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. Lord, and in due time, you will exalt us. And even as we are small, Lord, you work within us your own glory, your own image. You invite us to be great in a different way. So I pray that the goal of our weeks, the goal of our lives, would be to be small in all that we do. Lord, I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.